The inherent strict hierarchy in medical training programs can make it particularly difficult for students to report sexual harassment. Along with a fear of retaliation, harassment may also have damaging psychological effects. A lot of these events are just not reported due to fear of re retaliation and not making it through training, so I think this is a really vulnerable um, population of women. That's Dr. Tiffany Bell, a former AMA resident and fellow section representative for the Minority Affairs Section. She's a board-certified adult and general psychiatrist. She is joined by David Gabor, a partner at the Wagner Law Group. He's devoted much of his work to equal employment opportunities. On this episode of Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association, Dr. Bell and Mr. Gabor discuss the psychological effects and legal ramifications of sexual harassment and discrimination. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the American Medical Association. This episode of Moving Medicine is one of a two-part series about sexual harassment in medicine. This speech was presented at the 2018 AMA Annual Meeting in Chicago. Here's Dr. Bell. I'm going to briefly go through three definitions that I found um, quite interesting. So sexual harassment is defined as unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, and other verbal or physical conduct, conduct of a sexual nature when the conduct is made as a term or condition of an individual's employment, education, or living environment. Um, they are unwelcome verbal, visual, or physical conduct of a sexual nature that is severe and pervasive and affects working conditions. Now, this one had a clause that uh, some behaviors are considered minor and thus can be brushed off, um, except if they are recurring, which is frequent comments about a person's body. So that would make it to seem that if the behavior was an occasional comment about, oh, you look really nice today, or I like your body, or something along those lines, or a very inappropriate joke or a comment, maybe that wouldn't be considered sexual harassment, which I don't necessarily uh, agree with. Um, and then the third definition was another definition of sexual harassment is a myriad of behaviors ranging from daily microaggressions, subtle derogatory messages, negative jokes, um, to direct acts of physical sexual assault. Microaggressions are defined as actions, statements, incidents, which um, in general are indirect, subtle, or sometimes unintentional discrimination against a marginalized group. And in this, this term, it would be the women are marginalized in, in medicine. So what people normally assume is that if it happened to me, I would, I would report it right away. I would tell, I would let someone know. Um, and we'll talk about this a little later in scenarios, but this is referencing the Australian case where a senior surgeon pretty much warned trainees who complained about sexual harassment that these incidents were not well supported by their superiors. Um, the trainees were sort of advised to comply with the unwanted request due to fear of jeopardizing one's career. So you have to imagine that as a trainee, you often feel your career is in jeopardy at any point, and you're trying your best to get through training. Um, and if your superior is telling you to kind of go along with it, you would feel probably a lot more pressure to go along with it, even if you weren't okay with it. Um, and it's important to remember that women do have legal rights to gender equality and freedom from sexual harassment in the workplace. My question to you is, do the, the legal rights equal reality? So because you have a right to gender equality, does that mean you're actually going to be treated equally and not be exposed to sexual harassment? I would, I would guess the answer to that is no. 
it is important to note, as mentioned earlier, that sexual harassment can happen in any field. It can happen to any gender, so I won't be binary and say either gender, to any gender. Um, it is especially difficult in medicine, as we mentioned, because there is a known hierarchy and you really are expected to stay in place and, and stay in line or else your career, again, may be ruined. And so a lot of these events are just not reported due to fear of re retaliation and not making it through training. So I think this is a really vulnerable um, population of women. Okay. Experiencing sexual discrimination and harassment can lead to all of these symptoms that I'm going to list are pretty much avoidance, right? So you start avoiding the, the stressor that you're experiencing. Desire to leave work early, uh, using PTO, which in training you don't necessarily have PTO, so you have some sick days and they, they may be missing more sick days, skipping group meetings if they're not mandatory, or making excuses if you're... Um, attacker or whomever is harassing you is there, uh, difficulty staying focused at work, and then ultimately some people quit their jobs or they change career fields, so maybe you go from you know, one field to, to another. Uh, the problem with all of these symptoms are that if you're avoiding work, if you're not there, people who don't know you're being sexually harassed will then see you as a, a slacker or someone who's just not very invested in their education, and that can lead to um, really problems with your career success in the long run. So some of the very important physical and psychological effects are listed here. We'll go through them. Um, but it's important to realize that a lot of people feel like this is something you can brush off and go on and there are no lasting effects. But people have symptoms of anxiety. They have depression, symptoms of depression, adjustment disorders, which basically mean if you weren't in that situation, possibly you would not have those symptoms. Um, headaches, PTSD, so avoidance, hypervigilance, nightmares, re-experiencing the event. And all these obviously will negatively impact your ability to function as a physician. Um, weight loss or gain due to changes in appetite. Poor sleep, uh, poor self-esteem or self-worth, self-doubt, uh, which if you're full of self-doubt, you probably are going to use your coping skills improperly. You won't be able to learn effectively. And again, that will lead to issues with your career and hypertension. And there were many other ones, but we just wanted to list some of the symptoms that are more than just your feelings are hurt or you're embarrassed. And I just put this here briefly, and then I'm, I'm wrapping up. But if you're a victim of sexual harassment or discrimination, regardless of if you report it to someone, you still can get help. So what we would recommend is that you, you know, if someone were having the symptoms of depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, um, you still want to get treatment for that, at least get those symptoms evaluated. And um, even if you don't report the abuse for the many reasons that we've already discussed, it's so important to take care of yourself because the suicide risk can increase if you are constantly untreated depression. So that's it. Thank you for your attention, and we'll go back to this um, during the question section. Good morning. I'm David Gabor, and I'm the attorney in the room, but don't hate me for that. I see a bunch of people in the back. There are seats up front. You're welcome to come and sit down if you want to. So if you could, by a show of hands, how many of you know somebody who has felt that he or she was the victim of sexual harassment? You raise your hand. Okay. How many of you know somebody who felt that after complaining about sexual harassment, they were retaliated against? Hands up. 
It's happened to me with several members of my family also. So basically, studies show 25 to 54% of women claim they experience sexual harassment. And the numbers vary depending on the question. Because if, if a person thinks the question is, were you physically touched? The percentage is lower. But sexual harassment is not just physical touching. It's also, it could be verbal. It could be other physical acts without actually touching the person. Three quarters of the people who complain feel like they've been the victim of retaliation. And as a result, a lot of the harassment doesn't get reported. In 2015 alone, there was $140 million paid out at the EEOC. The real numbers and cost of companies probably closer to a billion dollars. People talk about a revolution. And you know, there are a lot of reasons why it may have started, but we are in a revolution. We had the case involving the US Olympic team. We've got the entertainment industry, Harvey Weinstein, and 35 or 40 other celebrities. It's in politics, both parties. This isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. It's across the board. Executives of companies like Stephen Wynn. The impact is more people are going to start talking about it. And because of that, as an employer, people need to be much more proactive. And as an individual, and from a human standpoint, this is a problem that's existed for a long time, and it has not been resolved. So let's talk a bit about some of the definitions. I'm going to refer to what my colleagues said. But harassment can be physical, or it could be verbal. It could be severe. It could be pervasive. Severe would be touching somebody inappropriately. Pervasive would be constantly commenting about a person, her appearance, asking her to go to dinner, asking for dates again and again and again, and that can become harassment. Quid pro quo. If you do X, I'll get you a promotion, you can keep your job, you can make a lot of money. Very important, intent does not matter. It is not necessary for me to intend to sexually harass somebody if I intend to commit the act, the act alone is enough, without it actually intending to hurt somebody. Also, we talk about gender neutral, just briefly. It could be male on female, female on male. The issue of male on male, female on female, or harassment of people because of their gender identity, transgender, or sexual orientation, hasn't been fully resolved with the court. My recommendation to all of you is, any harassment should not be tolerated without trying to examine where it comes from. Harassers can be. It can be an employee. It could be your supervisor. It could be your subordinate. It could be the FedEx guy, the UPS guy. It could be a vendor, the computer person. It doesn't have to be a person who you work with. And retaliation is so important. Retaliation basically is a person opposes what they believe to be illegal conduct committed towards them or they witness with somebody else. They oppose it, and within a relatively short amount of time, we call close temporal proximity, something bad happens to that person. In 1998, the Supreme Court decided Farragher and Ellerth, and basically what those cases said was, if you have a good complaint mechanism in place, and 
people can report in that mechanism. You've got an employee manual. You've got some level of training. And then employers have a protection. And at first, people started to do really good things. But then, unfortunately, we switched over to canned programs. So you can watch a 30-minute webinar as part of your job. And if you watch that webinar, you're going to learn how bad sexual harassment is. Unfortunately, the shift was away from really good proactive training to canned programs. Now, by show of hands, how many of you have watched the webinar and multitask, tweeting, texting, emailing? That's the problem. If you look around the room, almost everybody. And that's the problem. The message from the employer to the employees got lost. Live programs, and I, I get up on my soapbox pretty much every day of the week and plead with people, have live programs, make them interactive, get people talking, set forth your expectations, shift the focus to make the employees in the room responsible to help get rid of sexual harassment in your workplace. And we talk about culture. You know, when you, when you watch a webinar, and it's a canned webinar, and you're telling people, don't harass somebody. That's the same as telling people, don't run red lights. Don't burn down your house for the insurance money. Because those people don't benefit from the program. Everyone else who does benefit, you lose that opportunity in a canned program. So we do talk a lot about live programs being so important. This is an important slide. On the left side are comments taken from real cases about what should not be done. Oh, boys will be boys. You know, promising things that can't be delivered. Look on the right side. Thank you for bringing this harassment or this complaint to my attention. We take this matter seriously. I'll be reaching out to HR immediately. You can reach out yourself to HR. We do not tolerate retaliation. And then let them know they can come to you if they've got questions. And basically, the idea, and this is talking about solutions, is switching the power dynamic in your organization, getting people to understand that this is a company that wants to hear from you if there's a problem. This is a company that wants to resolve problems. And that's why we're training, with top-down buy-in. So we've got a top 10 list okay, of, of things that are takeaways. Okay. Audiences must relate to a training. How many of you have seen that video of the pretty woman walking down the road and the construction worker whistling at her? People have seen that. A few people have. You know, the problem is if you train, make it relevant. Talk about things that are real in your workplace. And in a few minutes, Henry's going to lead us in some scenarios, and we're all going to chime in and talk about that. If you can't get live training, try to have something like a town hall or a forum where people can talk it through with a facilitator. Look for people's skills when you're hired. And, and really, all four of us have talked about that. I know Henry and I talked a lot about that this morning. Um, Tiffany and Reshma talked about it earlier. People's skills are as important as technical skills. Get top-down support. Get your C-suite. Get the top people in your hospital, in your medical group, wherever you're working, to buy in and tell people this is what we want as a great place to work. When decisions are made, don't look at the financial. Look at what's right. I showed you the slide about what managers should say if somebody comes to them, but make sure they're ready in advance. And then a couple more, and then I'll go back to Henry. Follow up with people. If someone complains, follow up to make sure they're not being retaliated against, that they still feel 
like they are a member, a valued member of your team. Defining relationships, people date. What happens in your organization if people go out on one date? Are, do you have a policy in place? Think about that. Too many organizations don't have a policy. Also, early resolution. Sometimes disputes aren't really malicious, and they could be resolved by getting people to talk in a mediation. And last but not least, let's talk about really assessing, assessing your culture. What is your culture right now, and how can we make it even better? Okay, thank you. That was Dr. Tiffany Bell and David Gabor. Dr. Bell is a former AMA resident and fellow section representative for the Minority Affairs section. Gabor is a partner at the Wagner Law Group, where he's devoted much of his work to equal employment opportunities. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Be sure to check out the other episode in this two-part series about sexual harassment in medicine. To attend live presentations like Dr. Bell and Mr. Gabor's, visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine to become an AMA member and register for our annual meetings. You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.